Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And welcome to our Mach 3 episode. Mach, Mach, Mach 3.39. <laughs> Wait, is this a shaving commercial now all of a sudden? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, everybody should know by listening to the intro what, I, what I'm talking about. Really excited. we got a great episode for you guys today and the next week and the week after that. This is, this is that. another series, guys. Yeah, so this, this is going to be fun are like three or four part series. Yeah, we're not sure yet. We've had a couple interesting interviews that on, were pretty long. This is going to focus on the history of Lockheed Martin and the skunk works and all of the amazing planes that have come out of that. And I think I was thinking on the way here, I was like trying to think of some other, uh, some correlation that I could draw between Lockheed skunk works and the automotive world. And there's really nothing. Not There's nothing because you go, oh, well, Mercedes has put a ton of money into their Formula One program. Yeah, but not like the federal government put into Lockheed Martin. Well, not even and that. Then you go, and I just go, okay, what if, I mean, we were told stories of, um, from Jim, who we'll have on later. He's like, yeah, they wanted to bring the SR-71 back to fight in Desert Storm. And mm -hmm. he says, I need a blank check in 30 days. Even Ford didn't do that for Carroll Shelby. No, where it was just like here, here, do whatever you that, want. You know, that's interesting though. The Carol Shelby aside, that's, that that actually does have some parallels. That's the only thing I could think of, but still, the imagine, imagine if they were like Carol Shelby. Here's three hundred billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Go beat Ferrari. It would have been um, easy, right? I think the stakes are a little different there. Motorsport versus war. I'm just, I was, I'm always just trying to think of comparisons. It's just <laughs> how I work. I'm always yeah. trying to compare things to another thing. I just couldn't think of anything. Couldn't think of anything at all. But I did think that the seat of the pants, Carroll Shelby Motorsport was almost as close as we could get in the in the similar time frame, even. Yes. Of guys that are just giving it their all, willing to there, die. You will definitely else. like one of the characters in our story here, Kelly. He he's kind of the Carroll Shelby type. Okay. You will okay. you will definitely draw I, some parallels. I feel like men back in this time were were different. I I I feel like you always still, use the word grit. Like grit, they, had right. grit. they had grit, moxie, you know, all these different things yeah. that you want to say. And not that, and we talked to uh, uh, Tucker Hamilton, who's a colonel in the <laughs> yeah, Air Force. He's got some he, moxie. <laughs> he's got some moxie too. So modern dudes have it, but it's almost like the moxie and the grit was by, uh, you didn't have a choice. Right. It was by necessity. You had to have it because it was the only way forward. And, yeah. I, and I don't think it's the only way forward anymore. And I think the this 60s and 70s are this unique time in history where this is what we're going to do. This is the only way forward. We have to put human Well, lives. you talk about the stakes. Like, it was, we thought it was the end of democracy. The end of democracy was the end of the world, or it right. could be. Right. If we weren't able to surveil what these dirty, nasty Russians were doing. Damn Ruskies. I mean, this that's what this is all fueled I, by, is yeah. all, all of this. Everything we're going to talk about over the next week, two weeks, it's all fueled by the Cold War. Well, I'm right? I'm rewinding for our first episode a bit further back know, than that. Right, Chris. but but when it comes down to it, the like Lockheed, like hundred years further back. Actually. <laughs> I'm just saying the Lockheed Martin skunk works as we think of it today. Yeah, when you think of the planes that came out of it, out of the Cold War, that's Cold War. Yeah, and, and, that's and, what and it was. it's un, it was unlimited money. It was unlimited money, and as we'll talk, uh, it, it did a lot of good things. There's a lot of great things that came out of that unlimited money, and. I hope when we talk about, so here's, we should talk about what we're going to frame this as. Okay. So our first episode here is going to be kind of the history of Lockheed Martin at Skunk Works and what Skunk Works really is, where that came from. I'm really interested to know what Skunk Works mean. It's a very because, interesting story. Because skunks are nasty. Right. It's right? A, yes. And they are. <laughs> they are. Oh, can I tell you a story about a skunk? Okay. There was a skunk in my yard, uh -huh. and it was terrorizing. I shouldn't tell this story. Never uh -oh. mind. Uh -oh. I'm taking it back. I'm, I'm thinking Anybody... this ends badly. I, 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 I killed the skunk. I yeah, mean, well, I, yeah. I would anyway, I, I, I cornered it in a, in a culvert after it had attacked my dog. Did and your dog get sprayed? It didn't. Thank goodness. Oh, wow. But it was nasty. It was in there. It was like growling and hissing at me and yeah, stuff with mean. its little tail. I'm like, oh, don't spray me. <laughs> it, skunk didn't make it. So, okay. But they're yes. nasty creatures. They're nasty. I'm surprised you didn't get sprayed even after you. It was in a culvert, like way in the thing. He probably didn't have the aim. It was dark. Yeah, but okay, you can smell a skunk spray from like a mile away. Oh, he stunk. I mean, he was okay. probably trying. Okay. And it stunk for days. And I and it was in my neighbor's culvert too. So you're like, yep. <laughs> so I just imagine he was just like, what the f is going on? Yeah. All right. So to understand the origins of the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works program, we need to first delve into the history of the company 
itself. And what we know today is Lockheed Martin is actually a fairly recent merger of the Lockheed Corporation and the Martin Marietta Corporation, which happened in 1995. So prior to 1995, wow, most of the stuff they we, were two separate companies. Because we think of the, the Blackbird, which is, you know, there's a few planes that inspire the Blackbird, like the A-12 or whatever it is. Yep, the YF-12, the Oxcart A-12. Right, exactly. and then we have the F-117. These yep, are all the pre- That's all developed pre-merger. Exactly. So when, when we talk about the history of Skunk Works, we are talking about Lockheed. Okay. Okay. And the Lockheed name traces back to Alan Haynes Lockheed, who was born in California in 1889. I'm so glad we're starting off the story. This man was born in America. In the versus, good old USA. Yeah, every, every single every, story we've done. This guy was like, born in some hovel in Italy where he became an amazing <laughs> engineer and developed boats that yes, are cars yes, and everything no, else. Here we are, California. This guy was a Nazi. I'm glad we don't have to say that this time. Which is, Ooh, yeah, you're right. No, yeah, we, which we have we, to say quite a bit. Yes. So one thing that's interesting to note is that although the name is pronounced Lockheed, it was spelt L-O-U-G-H-H-E-A-D. Lockheed. Lockhead. Lockhead. Yeah. More, on, more on that in a bit. Okay. Okay. Right. So regardless, Alan was the youngest son of Flora and John Lockheed. Flora was actually a famous novelist and in a completely unheard of move at the time, separated from her husband in 1889 or like right at the turn of the century. Flora. That's, that's rare. That's what I mean. Divorce was wild back then. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh be still my heart. Yeah. yeah be still my heart. <laughs> uh, so Flora took Alan and his siblings to live in uh, Santa Barbara, where the brothers apparently first became enamored with kites and all things aeronautical, right? They are just, seeing kites out just by. Just think how much more mystery. I mean, how much more mystery there was as a child back then? Yeah. It, everything is so easy now. You can watch you're it all on TV. You're sitting in front of the TV. You, you, got, the, you got the YouTubes, Chris. You got the YouTubes. Damn, internet's rotten in the kid's brain. You got, you've got like all these shows to tell you everything you could ever want to know about space. And the real mysteries now basically lie in the depth of math, depths of mathematics and physics <laughs> is where like what? the real mysteries now. I'm serious. Okay. Like when you talk about like string theory and like we, things have gotten so complex what about, that we've discovered. What about like space and that, that's the what ocean? I'm yes, but it's all about, it all becomes like physics. All, like, is this mass. possible? Is this dimension possible? Is this, you know, how many layers of space time do we have folded on top of one another? <laughs> like all this stuff has become so complicated that it's really, really hard for it to be a, a, a childhood mystery. Yeah. But meanwhile, when you look at flying meanwhile kites, circa 1900, Alan, Alan, I'm, look, look at the kite. I've it's got a flying. kite. It's flying. It's flying. So flight was like this amazing mystery thing. Yeah, for just sure. Awesome. And it just captures the imagination right away. Right. You're right. There's a level of understanding that you don't need to, there's no barrier to entry to be amazed by a, by a kite. That's true. So later, Flora moved uh, the family to a fruit ranch near Alma, California, where the brothers first encountered the professor. Okay. Professor John Joseph Montgomery was an inventor, physicist, engineer, and faculty at Santa Clara University. However, he was best known for his invention of controlled heavier-than-air flying machines, a.k.a. unpowered glider planes. Right. So... This was right at the turn of the century, and while the Wright brothers were the first to make history in North Carolina in 1903 with the first powered flight. Well, it's not the Wright brothers skunk works, so we know that. No, <laughs> so we're not that. But you need to realize that industrious inventors and backyard engineers were toying with flying machines all over the country and really all over the world. Breaking arms and legs every day. Yes. But before you discount Professor Montgomery as being behind the curve, after all, he's not the first to flight, so to speak, you need to consider this. So the Wright Brothers' historic flight only covered a couple of hundred feet between sand dunes at Kitty Hawk, right? Yep. Meanwhile, at roughly the same time, Montgomery had been conducting tests of his tandem wing glider, the Montgomery Aeroplane, by flying it after releasing from a hot air balloon at high altitude. The resulting glides were not only remarkably well-controlled and maneuverable, but lasted over 13 minutes. Take that Orville and Wilbur with your paltry 12-second flight. So, Well, to be fair, they were starting on the ground. Right. 
I mean, maybe I think it's much more impressive to be hundreds of, if not thousands of feet in the air. Well, it takes a little bit more. uh, All right, professor, let's go. Fire up the hot air balloon. I think it takes a lot more gumption to to drop out of or just balls. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What's a yes. So anyways, these experiments of Professor Montgomery were basically what stirred in the Lockheed brothers a passion for designing aircraft. Right. So first they're like, ooh, kites. Oh, and then they're like, the, professor. the crazy professor over here is here actually he is his... flying. So, the... so is this guy designing stuff in his house? Does he have a, a hangar? Where is this guy building this I... stuff, I wonder? So in a lot of the research I did, a lot of these guys are just renting out dilapidated buildings. One guy had a church. This Martin Marietta company that Lockheed later partnered with. Sure. The founder of Martin Marietta, I didn't focus too much on him because it came in later after Skunk Works. Um, but he rented out an old Methodist church oh. in, I forget what part of the country. Well, when you're doing stuff like this, you want to be as close to God as possible. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> there was all these parallels about how like the stained glass made it so people couldn't see in, but would still let light in. Sure. And like without the pews in the way, there was this big open area without pillars where he could build his big flying machines. Way easier to be secretive back then. Right. Now the Chinese just hack in and steal it. Yeah. yeah. Well, true. Um, apparently that... That Martin guy, though, he couldn't disassemble the plane to get it out of the church after oh, no. building it. So that was, that was a whole nother, whole nother story. But anyways, no, it's not like they have these amazing like facilities where they're right. building these things. It is like twine, bailing wire, and like tissue paper that they're just trying it out. Let's figure it out. Yes. So the brothers moved around the country and worked odd jobs as mechanics and trying their hand at real estate at one point. But these schemes were always simply a means to fund their passion. They wanted to build airplanes. So let's fast forward to 1907. Alan Lockheed was 21. He climbed into a spindly collection of light wooden fabric, cables and glue, bicycle wheels, and a 30 horsepower engine. A small crowd of his colleagues, all auto mechanics, had formed on the abandoned base. Imagine field. this. <laughs> They're all standing around with a beer in their oh, hand. Oh, for probably. sure. So he's working out as an auto mechanic. And Lockheed's going to freaking crack his head oh, open. Everybody get sure. over here. Oh, and not see just this. that. You are spot on. <laughs> Alan offered three. This guy's going to no. send it. <laughs> Alan offered three to one odds to his fellow mechanics that he would be the first to get the plane to fly. No one took the wager. Anyone betting against Lockheed would have lost that day. Years later, he recalled, quote, It was partly nerve, partly confidence, and partly damned foolishness. But at that point, I had become an aviator. So it worked. It It worked at 21. Then in 1916, the brothers founded the Lockheed Aircraft Manufacturing Company in Santa Barbara to build a 10-place twin-engine F-1 flying boat. For their aerial sightseeing business. Oh, here we go. We're con- we're talking about planes and boats, and last time we talked about cars and boats, it didn't work out. Right? So well. Yeah, Lockheed. Their uh, their beginning uh, inventions or planes. A lot of them were amphibious designs. It seems. Why? What was? What were they? Were they into that for any particular reason, or it, I think was it, it just an open market where no one else was doing it? I think a lot of it is practicality. Like you don't need a runway to get these things crash off. crash in the water. Right. It's also a lot safer softer, to a little bit, a little well, depending on how high up you are. So, okay, but let me let me go over these stats again. So this is 1916. He first got off in his like weird hay bale right, wire give, thing. Give me context. When was the Wright brothers? Wright brothers was in 1903. Okay, so it's. 10 years, so 10, 13 years. Lockheed was 21 in 1907 when he first took flight in his homemade thing. It, it actually wasn't a homemade. He bought like a third hand crappy little single wing thing yep. and then got it off the ground at the baseball field. And then in 1916, the brothers built a 10 person twin engine F1 flying boat for what for? For their aerial sightseeing business, Chris. So there was this common thread throughout researching this story. I'm wondering how they were able to convince anybody to get it. Ten people? (laughs) Were there ten people that were willing to get on this thing? Right. Come on up. This is almost like you imagine like it'd be like a like a circus, like a snake oil system. All right, come on down. Try out my try my get on my ten person plane. See the world like you've never seen it before. Get a mile high. Mile high. Yes, exactly. For all my ten cents. There is a first person to join the mile high club. Wow. There is a first person. You. There is a founding member. And I <laughs> and I bet it's one of these dudes. Oh, right. You know, I mean, hey, but they got the 10 so person he's, he's telling his brother, eh, take the stick here while I like, give her the stick. 
<laughs> yeah, that's uh, probably exactly what happened. Right. It's probably that divorcee you were talking oh, about. Oh, there you go. No, that's his mother. Oh, no, that's never mind. That's his mother, Chris. <laughs> oh, you're just oh, oh, never mind. dirty. Okay, so <laughs> back to the fact that they're now running a sightseeing business. There was this common thread throughout researching this whole story that these guys always seem to be hustling with some unrelated business simply to squeak by while they worked on building planes. So while they apparently managed a sightseeing business, the brothers labored away in a rented garage. The brothers' efforts soon attracted the attention of 20-year-old John K. Jack Northrup. Does that name ring a bell, Chris? It does. Northrop? Northrop Grumman. Uh, exactly. I find it fascinating. How Doesn't these... anybody find any of these businesses by themselves? Why do they have to? I mean, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin. So, right. So here's the thing. Everybody's... There's all these like multi-billion dollar aviation companies today that started with these kids who all basically seemed to know each other back in the 1900s. But I suppose it's such a small circle of people who are doing this crazy sort of thing. Yeah, you got Of like building planes from the ground up when nothing else existed. Right. Anyways, Northrop was skilled in drafting and mathematics, and the Lockheeds employed him in designing their first aircraft, the F-1. This is this 10-person twin-engine flying boat. And when the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, Allen went to Washington to bid their F-1 design to the Navy. He's like, look, we got this big plane. You guys might like it. Okay. However, the Navy informed Lockheed that it would purchase only previously approved designs. Later, Lockheed said of this visit, quote, down there, I lost all the patriotism I ever had. Wow. He was pissed. But he did return home with a contract to build two planes of an already existing design, the Curtis Flying Boat, and as part of the contract... Imagine that, though. Imagine showing up to a record label and and being like, here's my song. And you're standing there in front yep. of the desk, and you got your guitar, and, you're, yep. and you play your song, and the guy goes... Yeah, I don't really like it, but uh, why don't you play some of these cover band shows that we've got lined up at the bar down the street? Yeah. And just being, like, crushed. Just crushed. But this guy, he he was smart. So what he did is said, okay, we'll build your stupid Curtis flying boats. We'll We'll build two of them. But as part of the contract, he stipulated that the Navy would agree to test the Lockheed designed F-1. When they touched down in San Diego, they realized they had just set a record of 181 minutes for that 211-mile flight. I'm looking at you like, yeah, 221 miles. was No, okay, but here's a brand new design that the Navy was like, no, we don't want to deal with your crappy, like, homemade plane design. Yeah. And he's like, all right, but you have to test it at least. Like, give us a shot. And the guy's like, Fine, fine, fine. Yeah, whatever. whatever. And so Just they bring build my it up stupid there. Cover band plane. Cover band bl- plane. <laughs> yes, exactly. They bring it up there and we're like, oh, by the way, we just broke the record for speed. Nice. I mean, that's, is, that's a big deal. Yes, it is. So did he get the contract then? Did they build the the ten person? Well, soon after the Navy completed its tests of the plane, the war had ended. World War One was done, and the military was no longer seeking new aircraft contracts. They wanted to basically because like it was rebuild. the war of all wars. We don't need any more war. There's not going to be any more. That's wars. it. We're all set. That's it. And as an interesting aside, the brothers did continue to fly that F one for the aforementioned sightseeing business. So is this the first nomenclature of F something? I. You know what I mean? Because yeah, everything well, else. Yeah, I know, is but like, F is usually a designation in the U.S. Uh, Air Force for a fighter. Oh, okay. So I see what you're saying. I didn't know if this was the no. first time that like F had ever been F1, used. Maybe, but it doesn't. it's not used how it is today. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, so anyways, they are like disappointed that the Navy doesn't want it, even though it's awesome as an aircraft. Yep. So they go back to their sightseeing business <laughs> and even entertain notable passengers, such as King Albert and Queen Elizabeth of Belgium who were so impressed with the flight that they presented the brothers with the Belgian order of the golden crown. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently these dignitaries were like the crazy enough people to get on the circus ride that is this crazy plane. Rich people need more contrast in their life. Yeah, and so they go up and they're like, hey, who are the... this, know is first... so, this is so amazing, isn't it, <laughs> King Albert? Oh, yes, it is. Yeah, we'll take it back to Prince Albert. Um, what's the, did, when was the first people to jump out of planes? When, who, who, who? Yeah, so that, I mean, well, in World War I, people were bailing out of planes. Yeah, but for I sure. mean on purpose. Well, <laughs> I don't I, mean like, oh, shit, the Germans got me. I got to get out of here. <laughs> I mean, when it was, was the Red Baron? 
Chris. The Red Baron was the, the first Baron. person to No, I don't know. The Red Baron shot him down, though. I'm just imagining that this 10-person plane, you could probably jump out of yes, it. Yes, you could have. I'm sure it was right around this time, because shortly after, in the 1920s, was the era of barnstorming, where it was like people playing racquetball on top of planes and wing walking and is all that the crazy... Is what that's called, is barnstorming? It is called barnstorming. Why? What, what's, you what? asked me this last week, and I didn't know. I don't know. You I still I, don't I didn't know? look it up. You still they, don't they, know. They, I think at one point, they like went through barns. Like They flew oh, through barns. Okay. They're storming through the barns. So that's that word is used today for like a mad rush on something. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's kind of because the, the plane is barn. I assume is, it's, it's storming, storming the barn. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. That's what Webster's that is. dictionary defines barnstorming. <laughs> 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 All right. So, anyways, it was around that time that with this new investment coming in, like they have money coming in. Oh, I, did, I also didn't uh, mention here, but they, along with entertaining dignitaries and rich people in their plane, Hollywood uh, producers rented out the plane to get aerial video shots of like cities and stuff. Because sure. this is all new. You can't yeah. just launch your drone to get aerial shots. No, They're like, wait, we can put a camera up in this thing? Once the film producers were in the sky, that's the Mile High Club. That's what. Oh that started. yeah! Oh for yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's a different type of film, Chris. They weren't producing that type of film. Well, it's once a mile high club. It's there's only one stipulation of what needs to happen to join, and it doesn't matter if it's I, being I filmed making, or not. So okay, I, I'm imagining yeah, well, this was the first instance anyways. of it. Okay, so. Uh, it was around this time that with new investments coming in and notoriety building for the brothers that they decided to change the spelling of their last name and the business. So you remember I mentioned that Lockheed was actually spelled L-O-U-G-H-E-A-D. Well, tired of his name being pronounced Loghead. Can I interject? You may. It's from Wikipedia. Barnstorming. Incorrect. Mile High Club. Pilot engineer Lawrence Sperry and socialite Dorothy Rice Sims have been described as the first persons to engage in sex while flying in an airplane. <laughs> the two flew in an autopilot-equipped Curtis flying boat near New York in November <gasps> it's 1916. The, it's the Curtis flying boat. That is... That's, their, that's the cover band. That's, that's the, the cover, cover band that's the cover plane. Band boat. The American Transportation Authority, NTSB, reports one case in which sexual activity is at least partly responsible for an aviation accident. Oops. <laughs> 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 I mean that that looks like that was the that was the first time in the damn cover band boat plane <laughs> during the First World War. German ace Oswald Bolt Oswald was di disciplined by superiors for taking a nurse up in the cockpit Ooh. of his fighter, allegedly becoming the first person to qualify as a member of the club. Although the logistics of how that would actually work are unclear, yeah. with the cockpit being very small and cramped, and the pilot having to constantly keep his hands and feet on the control stick and rubber pedals. Other maintain it was simply a joyride. I'm sure. <laughs> I can honestly say he could still fly the plane. What does he need his hands for? There's another pair of hands. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Onwards to more important topics. All right. So anyways, with the last name spelling. Um, side note. Okay. Second side note. What percent of Americans do you think have claimed to have uh, have? Oh, do you have a statistic here? I do have some statistics. I, I bet it's more have claimed than have actually uh, joined the club, per se. 17% of people who have flown on a plane claim to have joined the uh, the Mile High Club. Seems 9% of them say it was in, an air, in the airplane seat itself. 5% <laughs> said it was with a stranger. And 3% said it was with a crew member. And that was right after they wrote their letter to Penthouse Letters <laughs> of dreams that never wait, happened. Wait, what percent said it was with themselves? <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the vast majority. It's probably 100% of these. Uh, yeah, is ex that. exactly. Okay, so back to... Uh, They're so small. The airplane bathrooms wait, are so small. <laughs> they were so small. They are yeah, small. I, I, I don't, thought I you just... were talking about something else, but yeah. No, okay. no. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, I'm not a member of the Mile High Club. We'll have to work on that, though. We'll I don't want any part I mean, of working on that with you. <laughs> not, I mean, we, not you. All right, just <laughs> shut up. Back okay, to our story. Uh, so the Lockheed brothers, their name was spelled, basically it was pronounced Loghead. Everyone that read their name, it was like, oh, Loghead. So the brothers were pissed off. They're working with all these professionals and getting a lot of money, and they said, okay, we're going to actually legally change the spelling and the company to the now iconic Lockheed. Much better name. It Let's is. take a moment to hear from our sponsor, Petrolbox. Petrolbox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, 
apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications to be sent right to your doorstep. It's a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, and the Petrobox Premium, which gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. So through the next several years, the company went through a number of ups and downs that will I'll try to condense as much as possible. So that okay. was basically the formation of the company. And then we have all and these... When, when did they change their name? What year was this? This was like in... 1920-something? Yes. Okay, so we're 1920-something. And this these guys are mid-20s, late-20s, uh, year old. So he of. was... No, because he was 21 in 1907. So they're in their 40s. Okay, in their 40s. Middle-aged. Okay. <clears throat> yep. And so now the company is basically growing, going through all these different... It, it, I could have spent weeks talking about everything that happened in the Lockheed company, but right. I want to fast forward to Skunk Works. Yeah, let's so do it. So I'm going to condense this now. So by 1928, the company, now relocated to Burbank, had reported sales exceeding $1 million in 1928. That's a lot of money. So they're doing well. From 1926 to 1928, the company produced over 80 aircraft and employed more than 300 workers who were building five aircraft per week. So why don't we skip to World War II? Tell me what was going on in World War II with Lockheed. Well, there's something that needs to happen before World War II. You see, as businesses grow, things change. So the following year, the majority shareholders sold 87% of the company to the Detroit Aircraft Company. Four months later, the company's founder, the remaining brother, Alan Lockheed, resigned. He's like, I want no part of the company I created because it's under this new management. It seemed like it was just a bad deal. Right. The next year, the stock market collapsed and the Great Depression fell upon the world. The market for new aircraft was non-existent and the Detroit Aircraft Corporation went bankrupt completely. But a group of investors bought the company out of receivership shortly after and brought back the original Lockheed name. So I found this old archival clip from the 80s that sums up what happened next really well. In 1932, a small group led by Robert E. Gross had purchased Lockheed out of bankruptcy for $40,000 and staked the company's future on the development of an all-metal twin engine 40 transport. Grand. That's it. Models of the design were sent to the University of Michigan, where a young graduate student named Clarence L. Johnson conducted wind tunnel tests. Although his faculty advisors gave the design a passing grade, he wasn't much impressed. And after he had been hired on as a tool designer at Lockheed in August of 1933, he let chief design engineer Hall Hibbard know about it. So, 40 grand. Well, first, I suppose first we're of talking all, about. Yeah, right after the Depression, yeah. 40 grand. Like, who knows what's actually with the company? Right. But, but more importantly, you kind of missed the whole point of this. Imagine this young punk coming straight out of college who was hired as a lowly tool maker in your company telling the chief engineer that his design sucks. Yeah, sorry, it didn't really pass muster in the in Yeah, the I mean, tunnel. when we looked at it in college, yeah, they the faculty liked it. But no, it's it sucks, sir. I can do better. The balls on this kid. No kidding. Instead of reminding the outspoken young man of his place... Hibbard suggested he go back to the wind tunnel and see if he could improve the design. After 72 test runs, he came up with the solution. An unconventional twin-tail arrangement soon to become a Lockheed trademark. And the Model 10 Electra became the foundation for Lockheed's future growth. With his work on the design, Kelly Johnson became the sixth member of an engineering department in an industry which then couldn't afford specialists. Working, often simultaneously, as an aerodynamicist, stress analyst, weight, wind tunnel, and flight test engineer, he also put in long hours out in the shop, getting hands-on production experience, and learning firsthand the importance of designing producibility into an airplane. First so, of all, I feel like the music is from like I a, was from like Robin Hood. The movie I was just going to say we need more <laughs> flute background yeah, music yeah, in was, our interviews. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's super interesting. That was that was one of the motivations for me is I went to uh, Jalopnik at one time was hiring. Okay. And it says, oh, need writers, blah, 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 blah. And I didn't really know who Jalopnik was. I was just like, I wanted work, right? right. So I sent in my application. And then over the next few days, I kind of read Jalopnik. Yeah. And it's 
was garbage in my mind. It just wasn't very good. It was just a bunch of, you know, it was a bunch of crap. It was a bunch of political crap, a bunch of, you know, even well, cars. Well, a I just lot of it was clickbait at that time. It was very, very clickbaity. Lots of lists, listicles, things like oh, that. Yeah. So I sent the editor at the time, Patrick, yeah. an email being like, just kidding. Your jalopnit sucks. I, I rescind my application. <laughs> I don't want to work dick. for your company. I know. I was super what dick. What a dick. Get an email back. Uh-huh. Ten minutes later. Yeah? Then you can do better, right? Show me. Yeah. And that was like, well, shit. I, it, it, it's, it's an appeal to pride. Yeah. It's an, an appeal to work ethic. And that's what I think happened to to Johnson, to Kelly Johnson. Exactly. It was, it was like, oh, yeah? Show me. You think that's bad? Do better. Right. Prove it to me. Step up to the plate. And we'll find out that this attitude fueled the success of Lockheed. 100%. So despite his apparent arrogance, Karen's Kelly Johnson proved himself to be not only something of a genius aerodynamicist, but also, and probably more importantly, a practical engineer who wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. And kind of remember some of these names, because in some of our later episodes, we're going to be talking about them casually, ca talking about the names. Right, so, so Kelly Clarence Jones Johnson, who his nickname was Kelly Johnson, yep. he is the guy that Stark Skunk Works, as you'll see here in a bit, and basically leads all of these programs. And what was his history? He was just a machinist. Uh, he was, he went to school I don't want to say as just an engineer. That's a yeah. He started as what they wanted, like a tool maker. So he'd be the guy making the presses and stuff for manufacturing so the planes. Important. I mean, that's a, it was important. And he was trained as an engineer, but there's a later quote in here. Um, I don't know if I included it, but one of the management, this guy was so intuitive with aircraft design that they said he could, they swore he could see how the air moved. <laughs> it's like this guy can see the invisible air itself because he was just so intuitive in how he built things a lot and of, understood. A lot of human success and, and driven human endeavors kind of always tie back to the, having the right guy in the right place at the right time. For it sure. sounds like him being there was a case of that. Yeah. Aren't you glad I'm here at the podcast? I am. It is exactly <laughs> the same thing. It's like you can see the sound waves. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so it is actually, we're talking about this Kelly Johnson, but he was so much more than just a really good and intuitive designer. Just like the company's founder so many years ago, Kelly was not just an engineer. He was an aviator. Kelly prided himself on being the flight test engineer on all of his designs. And later in his career, had even formulated a mandate that all Lockheed engineers should be able to fly their own designs. That makes a lot of sense to me. It does, but that wasn't how it was. These were just that's called nerds on the drafting I know, board. but that's, like, that's called having skin in the game. You're exactly. going to design this? You're going to make this this way? Then yes. you better be comfortable bringing it up in the air. Exactly, and that's what it was. And to him, it was more than just a sense of pride and practicality. He firmly believed the designer needed to experience the challenges of flying these aircraft firsthand. He later had this to say. And I decided at an early age that unless I had hell scared out of me once a year, I wouldn't have the proper balance to really design new airplanes of any type. So he basically is like, unless I'm at the stick up in the air and like I'm the one facing when things go wrong and challenges. You lose all, he's, he you says lose you lose perspective. perspective. Exactly. Yeah. And that again is just what made this guy such an amazing leader. And Kelly Johnson became the foremost designer at Lockheed and developed some of the most important aircraft through the years of World War II, including one of my personal favorite aircraft, the P-38 Lightning. Now, we're going to go in depth with some of our favorite planes to come out of Lockheed and Skunk Works in a later episode, but the P-38 does warrant special mention here. You see, the P-38 was extremely fast. It reached over 500 miles per hour when it went into dives. It was so fast, in fact, that the airframe encountered issues as it approached the realm of the speed of sound. Yeah, it's getting there. Kelly realized that they were reaching the limits of what a propeller-powered aircraft could do. And by the time the Army Air Forces asked Lockheed to submit a proposal for a novel jet propulsion fighter plane, Kelly had already been studying jet propulsion for three years. When he made his proposal at Wright Field on June 18th, he made the astounding promise that he'd deliver an aircraft within just 180 days. Getting immediate approval, he was cautioned that the utmost secrecy was required. Lockheed was already swamped in terms of manpower, tooling, and facilities 
with wartime contracts. But this was a blessing in disguise, an opportunity to implement an idea he'd been pestering Robert Gross about for years. Let him round up a small group of talented people, designers, engineers, and shopmen, put them under one roof where they could all work closely together, and give him complete authority over everything from procurement to flight test. So Kelly basically said, I can do this, and I can build this plane in six months, but... I need complete autonomy. I need carte blanche. Yep. I need to pick my guys, I need to run them, and I can't have you answering or asking any questions about what I do. That's where the uh, the Carol Shelby thing comes to mind. Exactly. It was like he told, the, he told Ford the same thing. Yes. That's great. So even though it didn't yet have its now famous moniker, what Kelly Johnson had just established was the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works Program. Lockheed Skunk Works Program. Well, yes, but yes. we know it today is yes. Lockheed Martin. And there's a reason it became so notorious. Not only did it produce the most amazing aircraft the world has ever seen. It was also a top-down rethink of organizational structure that is still emulated to this day. You see, besides the secrecy that such a program would afford, the Skunk Works program had a more important goal. Efficiency. Period. That's it. All manner of bureaucracy of that large corporation struggles with from day to day was completely cut out. Paperwork and red tape would be cut to the minimum. Each engineer would be designer, shop contact, parts chaser, and mechanic, and each would remain within a stone's throw of the shop at all times. There'd be but one object, to get a good airplane built on time. Hey, something built on time. And he usually, most of his aircraft, he actually got out to bid before deadline. Now here's the thing, as we look at the, at the military today, it's not like this anymore. No, no because there's isn't. a lot of bureaucracy, and there was there was one program where he didn't win the bid, and it didn't get in on time, and it was because the government or whoever it was who had sent out the contract changed the the requirements several times of through the, the progress. Yes, and so he basically said, I will not accept another bid or contract from the government unless your requirements are set in stone. Right. And it was just, yeah, it's very interesting how he said every engineer is not only an engineer, he's the shop hand, he's the mechanic, right? he's the, the goddamn janitor, right? right? He's cleaning up the floor dry. Yes, yes the exactly. Yep. It's because you need to have your hand on everything in order to, to basically run things efficiently and not have this weird bureaucracy and vertical integration of like, well, yes, let's hand that down to Joe because that's his job. I'm not right. going to do that. So Kelly Johnson went on to oversee the it's development. It's because no one wants, especially when it comes to uh, stuff like this where things could go horribly wrong. Yeah. Nobody wants to take responsibility for anything. That's why, uh, in, in this case, that's not true, obviously. Right. But in, in a lot of cases in, in the corporate world, nobody wants to take responsible responsibility for anything if the stakes are high. So then yeah. you have these situations where it's all the pass the buck. Oh, that's Johnny's problem. That's his deal. Let's kick the can down the or road. Or worse, you know that whoever the manager was that told you to do this job, you know, I've encountered this in my personal job, that you know that the decision they're telling you to do or the project you're working on is the wrong project or they're going the wrong direction with something. And you know that. But you can't tell them that because it's, it's already been decided, Chris. Don't talk to me about that. It's already been decided. That's where Kelly Johnson also said, if the janitor has a problem with the airframe, he gets to tell me and I get to basically ask him what the solution is. Right. Like he will listen to anyone about what the problem is and what they think their solution Very is. Very unique. So Kelly Johnson, he went on to oversee the development of 44 different aircraft throughout the Skunk Works program before his retirement finally in 1975. But how did the program ever get the name Skunk Works? Now, before we get too much further, let's take a break here and talk about our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Oberk is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are actually passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. I love it. it's a simple, foolproof, two-step system, easy, and gives an amazing finish. And right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only on OBERCCARCARE.com, but also on DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. Please go check them out today. Well, to understand the origin of the name, we need to go back to 1930, when the comic strip 
Lil Abner gained popularity. The comic was a satirical comic strip that appeared daily in many newspapers across the U.S., Canada, and Europe, and focused on a fictional clan of hillbillies in the poor mountain village of Dogpatch, USA. Wow, this is redneck. This oh, is redneck. yes. <laughs> Sounds redneck In addition as well. to the usual antics of the hillbillies and they would get themselves into, there existed the Skonk Works factory, which was a dilapidated factory on the outskirts of Dogpatch. Throughout the comic, many poor locals would be killed off by the toxic fumes of the concentrated skonk oil, which was- <laughs> Are we spelling this S-K-O-N-K? It is, yes. That's okay. why I'm pronouncing it that way. All right. Uh, skonk oil, which was brewed by grinding up dead skunks and worn out tennis shoes into a smoldering still. Why are we doing this? The purpose of the <laughs> skonk oil was never re revealed or relevant to any of the stories. It was simply a plot device for comedic effect. Yeah. Anyways, the comic strip was well known and became ingrained into American culture at the time. I imagine it would be similar to me joking about Garfield, and everyone knows who Garfield is, and that for some reason he likes lasagna and hates Mondays. Right. right? He sure does. So people know this little Abner and the skonk works thing. Anyways. The comic strip was well-known, and in the mid-1939, when Lockheed was expanding rapidly, the YP-38 project was moved a few blocks away to the newly purchased 3G Distillery, also known as 3G or GGG Distillery. Anyways, Lockheed took over the building, but the sour smell of the bourbon mash lingered, partly because the group of buildings continued to store barrels of aging whiskey. It was oddly enough- It makes for an interesting work environment. Yeah, I don't think you would get drunk, but you could if you want. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Oddly enough, though, that first location of Lockheed's Secret Works Division, it wasn't the only one that smelled bad. Fast forward to 1964. During the development of the P-80 jet, the engineering team was located adjacent to a plastics factory that, of course, stunk. The smell was so bad that according to Ben Rich's memoir, an engineer- Who's Ben Rich? Ben Rich is uh, one of the engineers there. Okay, so he's like one of the lead head engineers. Yes, okay. I don't talk about him again in here, but I think our guest later may have mentioned Ben Rich, actually. Yeah, he's a really important dude. He yeah. actually really was integral in the F-117 project and a lot of the stealth projects. Yes. He was a really big dude when it yeah, comes he, to the stealth He came programs. A, a little bit later when he came into yep. Yep. Uh, his own, but he, he was obviously there during 1964 when all this is happening. And in his memoir, he said that an engineer jokingly showed up to work one day wearing a civil defense gas mask because it smelled so bad. And as the development was very secret, the employees were told to be careful even how they answered phone calls. You can't be like uh, Lockheed's super secret division of airplanes, right? One fateful day, the Department of the Navy was trying to reach the Lockheed management team. Well, mistakenly, the operator at the switchboard transferred the call to the Secret Works Department. Well, Chief Engineer Irv Culver answered the phone, and in his trademark fashion of no-nonsense and quick, dry humor, he said, Skonk works! Inside men, Culver. Uh, excuse me, sir, replied the voice on the other end. Skonk works! Culver repeated. The name stuck. Culver later said in an interview that, quote, when Kelly Johnson heard about the incident, he promptly fired me. <laughs> It didn't really matter, though, since he was firing me about twice a day anyways. <laughs> At the request of the comic strip copyright holder, however, Lockheed changed the name of the advanced development company to Skunk Works in the 1960s because Skunk Works was, trademarked. was, of course, trademarked. The name Skunk's Works and the skunk design are now registered trademarks of Lockheed Martin Corporation, and the term Skunk Works has now become part of the common vernacular. It's used by other companies around the world to designate any sort of internal team working on a special or secret project. Right. The, oh, this is the Skunk Works team. Oh, this yeah. is our Skunk Works division working yeah. on some top secret thing. You yeah. know, I've heard it even in automotive manufacturers oh, yeah. where they talk about it. So that is how Skunk Works got its name. And from the founder, Alan Lockheed's original passion to Kelly Johnson's formation of a secret, no bullshit development program, Lockheed Skunk Works had developed the most incredible aircraft ever to fly to skies. That's awesome. I mean, what an incredible, incredible story of this company. And obviously the structure of the way that they did things was very unique. And I think a lot of companies try to emulate this. Yeah. Kelly Johnson, you need the right people right. and the autonomy, which 
even if you want the results, many management teams don't want to give that autonomy. They're scared. Right. Yeah. And Plus Kelly they, Johnson. They, here's the thing. What? If you give autonomy, you can't take credit. Well, uh, true. Yeah. yeah. I suppose that's probably some of it. The pride yeah, involved. For sure. Um, there are actually a lot of like business school study. Kelly Johnson, he wrote down 14 like critical rules in how he operates this division. And sure. so a lot of people will study that. What are they? Yeah, I'll go through them real quick here for you. The first one is the Skunk Works manager must delegate practically complete control of his program in all aspects. So it's is, not the Skunk Works manager cannot talk about Skunk Works? No, no yeah, rule number one is not Fight Club. No, but it's exactly what we talked about. You have to basically relinquish control. Uh, principle two was strong but small project offices must be provided both by the military and industry. I don't know how that pertains to today. The number of people having any connection with the project must be restricted in an almost vicious manner. Basically, keep your teams extremely small. Right. A very simple drawing and drawing release system with great flexibility for making changes much provided. So basically being nimble with, with your drafts and your with your drafts yeah. and how designs actually are produced. There must be a minimum number of reports required, but important work must be recorded. So basically, we're not going to bother you with reporting all your work, but if you do something that is going to make it into the final design... You better tell us. You, you better figure yeah, out yeah. so, so we can just, repeat just, that. He doesn't want everybody to be drowned in file cabinets worth of stuff. Exactly. Uh, number six was there must be a monthly cost review covering not only what has been spent, but also what the projected costs of the conclusion of the program are. He was... Um, there, I forget which plane it was that he was working on but as he developed the plane he also developed all the tooling to mass produce the plane as he went right and so supposedly he caught he saved the government over the lifetime of this aircraft like millions and millions of dollars just by how he was developing it to be actually built he didn't develop it just to make it a good engineering plane yep. he developed it to be easy to so manufacture the manufacturing process as well. As well. Yeah. Uh, number seven is the contractor must delegate and must assume more than normal responsibility to get good vendor bids. Um, okay. Eight is the inspection system currently used by Skunk Works. Uh, I don't care about that one. Any other good ones in there? Oh, the contractor must be delegated the authority to test his final product in flight. He can and must test in the initial stages. So that's what we talked about. It's like, you got to put your money where your mouth is yep. and be Skin able to game. go up in that plane. I think that is one of the coolest ones. Uh, the rest of them all have to do with management styling and funding, but it, it just goes to show some of the ideas that this Kelly Johnson had and what made it so great. So what are we doing next week? What's this? What's the story? So next week we are going to, we have Jim Goodall. Okay. Who is the foremost expert on the SR 71. Right, which is and, probably and, and, the most famous. Right. And I think arguably the greatest plane to ever come out of Lockheed Skunk I Works. think it's, in my opinion, it's the greatest plane ever created. In you have to take this all in context, right? Like an F-35 is like a far more advanced aircraft. Right. You know, in, in, in almost every possible way. But you have to take it in the context of when it was built. And exactly. you have to do that with cars, too. Because you can look at um, many different cars that yeah, are just... Yeah, your 911 can still get smoked by a modern... Brand new Camry. Exactly. V6 Camry. <laughs> but obviously my car is way better. So it's you have to take things in the context of when they were built and, the, and what they were and the tools... Uh, that the they tool, had. The tool that they, were, that, that they became. I, I researched some about uh, the SR-71 just because I do want to go into it in our later episode where yep. we go through some of our other uh, favorite aircraft from Lockheed. Maybe next week we should do our... Should we do our list first? We should do our list first. All right, so, and, then we'll, and then obviously the SR is, is the best. So right. We'll just so save that next for, week we're going to have our list and I think that makes sense because I have some details that our, uh, our interviewee Jim did not go into that yeah. I think are really interesting. Yeah, there's there's some crazy stuff out there with SR-71 and some uh, stories that are that are incredible. And of course, there's all kinds of other aircraft that we're going to talk about as what, well. But uh, where I was going to get to with my point is you said with the tools available at the time, yep. they did computational computer analysis of some components of the SR-71 like 10 years ago, and they couldn't get it any better than the guy drew, draw, drew it on a chalkboard. Yeah, with a slide rule. Exactly. Basically. And so I think that's incredible. If you look at all the, like all the curves, everything like that, all this stuff was drawn. Okay, it was all drawn. Yeah, it wasn't like they didn't draw a, draw a point to a point and then have the computer like do. Okay, we want a thirty degree arc here. No, this was drawn by by hand on a drafting table by a dude, and I and I absolutely loved. And then it went Mach three point three. Okay, so this is this stuff is just yeah. it's mind blowing the amount of 
intelligence and and uh, and honestly, the, the risk that they imagine being at the drafting table, knowing you're going to put a human being in this and go, okay, go. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah, just, it's incredible. The One thing I just read last night when I was prepping this that I hadn't heard before, even from Jim, is so the Blackbird was ninety percent titanium alloy. And that was revolutionary at the time, right? In the '60s, guess what was the largest supplier of titanium, and where they bought most of the titanium from? Russia. Yes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they bought it through secret shell companies and then sold it to Lockheed. It's it's really interesting that America has very rich resources, especially when it comes to agriculture. But when it comes to special metals, yeah, it's mainly Russia and China. Which is so we bought dangerous. the resources from Russia to build are, a plane to spy gonna, on them. What were they telling him we're going to build? Yeah, we're going to build titanium uh, hammers. Yes. Like, yeah, they're lightweight we? and strong. Lightweight and strong. They're great. <laughs> Easy to carry around. No problem. All right, guys. That's all we've got time for for today. We will see you next week, and we're going to talk about the actual planes that Lockheed Martin uh, built. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a five-star review. We would really love that. We will see you guys on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> See you then. Take care.